The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. High fly ball, way back in center field. It is out of here. A grand slam home run. And this one belongs to the Reds. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the sixth consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress through the 2016 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com. The night after a 52-year drought has ended in the city of Cleveland, Ohio. Of course, it happened a long time ago for the fans down in Cincinnati with the Reds. The Bengals have been perennial winners, and you've got to forgive me tonight because we're going to talk a little bit about the Cleveland Cavaliers and their victory last night over the Golden State Warriors to win the NBA championship. We'll get into the Reds and the Indians here in just a little bit, but to do it, a man who played basketball for Wright State University was one of the Hall of Famers for Wright State and one of the most outstanding basketball players that they've seen come across their court in a long, long time. Our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you tonight? I'm fine, Dave. And all I can say is, um, had they had the three-point line when I was at Wright State, uh, I would probably have been in the NBA and uh, been way more important in life to be able to talk to you. But because they didn't, um, you know, at six, two and a half, uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to be making in the NBA. But Mark, you know, I can honestly say had they had the three-point line in high school, I'd still be here talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that three-point line, what it did, and the Golden State Warriors are a perfect example, it makes a, an average-sized guy a threat. And uh, because if you can hit the hit the three, uh, there's a spot for you, you know, in the NBA. But you know, I hope you guys are starting a brand new tradition in Cleveland that every 52 years you win a championship. I think it's a great <laughs> thing to have. I'll be rolling over in my grave the next time that they win one. Let me tell you. <laughs> before I before we go on, Mark, a, a belated Happy Father's Day to you and all the fathers that are out there. And you, I'm, I, I'm sure, like you. Uh, like my son and I, you guys got together yesterday, and it is always a special day to be with your your kids. And um, so, same to you. I got to go golfing yesterday with my younger son, have breakfast with my older son, Greg, and watch the game last night with my younger son, Patrick. And it it made that just an unbelievable Father's Day for all of us. That's the first championship, Mark. In 52 years in the city of Cleveland, the last one for a major sports team was the 1964 Cleveland Browns. Now, Mark, I'm not trying to date us, but I was four years old when that happened. I I do not remember watching Jim Brown run through the Baltimore Colts defense in that 27 to nothing victory that the Browns had. I don't know if you remember it, but I know when you go back and you look at some of the annals of what's happened in Cincinnati, the Reds winning in, in the 70s and again in 1990. And, of course, the Bengals have had some pretty good success here lately, especially uh, going to the playoffs and, and getting at least deep into the playoffs this past year. So it's been a lot more successful for the city of Cincinnati as far as sports is concerned than it has been for the city of Cleveland lately. You know, back you mentioned the 1964 game where the, the, the Browns shut out the Baltimore Orioles. I think it was 27 to nothing in what then was the Super Bowl. It wasn't called that, but it was a championship game, and you only had one league and all that. But <clears throat> people forget that back then, before the Bengals came into existence, the Cleveland Browns were the big team in Ohio. I mean, whether you lived in Cincinnati or Dayton, you know, I, I remember so vividly, religiously, getting up every day on Sunday during the football season, and it was black and white TV at the time, <coughs> and having breakfast and going out and working out or something, and then coming back and, and getting ready for the game. And they always had a, a, a 
a show before, and CBS carried the, the games. And it was what happened the week before. They had the highlights from the games the week before. And that, I mean, I'd have my popcorn. I'd have a couple sandwiches ready. I mean, it was a big routine for me, and I did never wanted to be disturbed. But I remember that game specifically when uh, Dr. Frank Ryan, the Browns quarterback, threw a touchdown pass uh, to Gary Collins across the middle, which sealed the game. And I remember that so vividly. I mean, they beat the snot out of them. And, you know, people forget that the Cleveland Browns, back in the 50s and 60s, they were the dominant team. I mean, they were they they won the American Conference football back in the, in the 40s, and then they, they transitioned into the NFL, and they really kicked butt. They were, they were a, a force. And, of course, when Jim Brown came on the scene, uh, it, it changed everything. He became such a dominant player. But I am a... <laughs> I was a long-time Cleveland Brown fan before the Bengals came into existence, and it was really tough for me to change my allegiance because I was, I was so wrapped up in, in, in Cleveland sports. It kind of made it surreal, didn't it, because you were so used to, to rooting for Paul Brown at, with the Browns, and then all of a sudden he shows up in Cincinnati on, on the doorsteps and, and forms the Bengals, and now all of a sudden he's come from north to south, and, and it's almost like the Brown South. Yeah, it was, and uh, it, it was conflicting. And, and at first, I wanted the Browns to win all the matchups because they, they had a chance to win the championship. They were still a very good team, you know, back in the late 60s when the Bengals came into existence. But uh, it was tough for me to finally transition uh, from, you know, the Cleveland Browns to the Cincinnati Bengals. That just wasn't in my DNA. But eventually, uh, we did, and I remember the first time I, I, I watched Monday Night Football, I think the Browns played the Packers or somebody, it was a really great game, and then the next week they had the Bengals on, and uh, the Bengals were, for an expansion team, uh, they were good for an expansion team, and they beat some teams, and all of a sudden, you know, they caught on. Now, you know, in, in the 90s when they became the Bungles, uh, people lost faith and all that. But as you just said, uh, I think the Bengals have been in the playoffs for the last five years, and they've changed that franchise around. They should have they should have gotten into the Super Bowl last year, except for a freak fluke play. And um, th- th- it's changed the dynamics of the landscape of football in Ohio because the Browns just aren't good, and they haven't been good for a long time, and I doubt they're going to be good this year. Well, obviously they're not going to be good this year, even though they are bringing up somebody from Cincinnati to coach them, and Hugh Jackson, i got a lot of confidence in him. Hey, let's get back to the Cavaliers, and we'll get into the Indians and Reds, I, I promise, because that's what our show is about. But being that the Cavaliers won the city's first championship, their first ever championship, Mark, this is the way it was described on the Cavaliers radio network last night, the final seconds with John Michael making the call. Ball's inbounded to Curry. Don't foul him as Curry fires a three. He missed it. Loose ball tip. Grabbed by Spates. Spates fires. And this one is over. Believe it, Cleveland. Savor it. Soak it in. The kid from Akron has come home. The Cavaliers are NBA champions. And the impossible dream has come true. Mark, there's a reason that I'm not doing play-by-play in the NBA, and it's because of that right there. John Michael was more subdued than I would have ever been <laughs> calling that championship series. Yeah, and you can bet that uh, he rehearsed that call a, a thousand times uh, on airplanes and in his mind and in his, you know, in the shower and all that before before that play. I've heard many announcers uh, confess to that. You know, when they see a big game coming up, you, you can't you can't waste that moment on spontaneity and just being, wow, he made it and we we're going to win. They rehearse those things. That's what the pros do. And uh, that's why I think he sounded relatively measured in that. But, you know, he, he was excited. I thought it was a great call. And uh, But the, the pros, they anticipate that. That's what they do. And, uh, you know, I remember when Jack Buck um, made the call, go crazy, uh, St. Louis. That was spontaneous. You know, when Ozzie Smith hit the home run uh, in the playoffs. Yes. And then uh, he had another call uh, when uh, Gibson hit the home run. I, we're playing I can't believe night. what I just saw. I, um, yeah, but he said, 
we'll see you tomorrow night uh, because that led to uh, another call. But then his son, uh, when the Cardinals did mm-hmm. that, they came back, I think it was, what, 2009 or 2008 and won a playoff game. He used his dad's call, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so that, he had that planned was... that, and that, that's that's what the pros do. They They come prepared, and that's why they're professionals. Mark, I am not ashamed to say that after the Cavaliers won last night, my son and I, Patrick and I, sat in his living room and were crying our eyes out. Obviously, you know, I I was a Reds fan growing up. He and Greg have never had this opportunity, and and thousands of other sons have never had an opportunity, growing up Cleveland fans, to root for a championship team. Yeah, they've been close. You know, the Browns, the Indians in 95 and 97. But this was really almost surreal to where you finally get to the situation where, hey, this really could happen. I mean, do you remember what the attitude was as far as Cincinnati and their fans were concerned? Not so much with the 1970 World Series, but in the 75 and 76, and then again in 1990, and how the fans really reacted towards winning that championships? It was a little different in, in those situations. If you, if you recall, back in the <clears throat> beginning of 1970, the Reds were supposed to win. I mean, they, they were not favored against, ba- against Baltimore in 1970, but they had a very good team, and nobody would have been shocked had they beaten Baltimore. But they were supposed to win in 71, and they finished fourth in the division. They were supposed to win in 72, and they got beat in the playoffs against Oakland. A great, great World Series against Oakland, seven one-run games, but they didn't win. 73, they didn't get back to the, to the World Series. 74, uh, they, they finished seven and a half games behind the Giants. So it, it appeared going into 75 that the door was shutting that this great team wasn't able to win the big one. They they had failed over five years. So I think in 75, them winning against Boston, it was a it was more relief than it was exultation. It was, oh, finally, Jesus, are you kidding me? They finally did it. So they were supposed to win. They were better than Boston. They, you know, squeaked by in a seven-game series and won it. And what that did, I, I think it gave Reds fans at least – the security of knowing, okay, we got one. You know, we, we, we got our one, and this team will be now known as a great team. In 76, they destroyed the league, and they were so much better than every team. They went into the playoffs against Pittsburgh and swept them. They go to, in the World Series against the Yankees, they swept them. And they just beat the hell out of the, the entire league. And that was a different kind of elation for Reds fans. It was like we now are seeing greatness. Let's just sit back and enjoy it. We know we got a great team. Now they didn't win a playoff again until '79. They lost in '77 and '78, and then it was um, 1990, which was a surprise, <coughs> a third kind of emotion that you, you you didn't anticipate that to happen, and you were it, that year the Reds won nine games in a row starting the season. And they were ahead in the tenth game, and it was rained out after they had a seven to nothing lead in the third inning. So they could have gone on a huge winning streak to begin the season, but they weren't supposed to win. And they they got within Dodgers got within five games, but never caught the Reds. Reds wire to wire. But everybody knew that wasn't a great team. It was a good team. They had great pitching, but it wasn't a great team. So each World Championship, as you guys now will know. Uh, now you're, you're in the club. If the Cavaliers win next year, and they could, unless he goes back to Miami, uh, then you're going to experience a different kind of emotion uh, with your sons if they win that final game next year. It's you're going to look and say, "Yeah, we're a good team. We should have won, and we did." And it's a different kind of satisfaction. Well, two points. First of all, there is no way LeBron is leaving and going back to Miami. He's not leaving Cleveland. That that I will go on my, on record right now and say there is no way, at least this year, that LeBron is leaving Cleveland. Secondly, you know that brings up a real good point that you you just brought up about the Reds. 
in 75. And I think that's the difference between that Reds team and, quite honestly, the the 94-95 Cleveland Indians team. If you look up and down that lineup that the Indians had that year, this is going to sound crazy, but I really believe it. it. It was comparable to the Reds lineup from the fact that there are so many future Hall of Famers that were in that lineup that are that were in the Reds lineup. You could compare them Hall of Fame for Hall of Fame and position by position. The difference is, Mark, is what you said. They got over the hump. The Reds did. In 75, they won the World Series, got that monkey off their back, and then the next year they went out to prove that the first year, for, for lack of a better term, was not a fluke, but they had the monkey off their back. They could play relatively more relaxed, where the Indians never got that monkey off of their back. In 96, they were they were the, the team that was targeted. They couldn't get past that. 97 was probably the weakest team that they had from 94 through 2001, and they made it to within one out of winning the World Series and couldn't do it, and that was the closest that they came. I think that's the difference between those two eras of teams. The Indians in 94 95 and 97, and the Reds back in 75 and 76 was the Reds won it and proved what a great team they are. Yeah, and I think that is going to be borne out uh, over time when people look back at at great teams and great players. uh, LeBron has etched himself in that upper echelon of the greats. Michael Jordan, obviously the biggest comparison. And if he wins a couple more, you're going to have to say, I mean, the, the performance he did, uh, he put on the last three games was overwhelming. He, he was he was a, a a man among boys in, in the NBA. I mean, he is he's such a physical anomaly. Six eight. I hear his weight anywhere from two sixty to two seventy five, but he's a he's a huge man. And to do the stuff he does, you see it on TV, and people don't realize this guy could he could be a defensive end in football, and he's he's incredibly strong incredibly quick, unbelievable endurance, and and one of the greatest athletes ever to play. And I, I do think that he is over overshadowed by Michael Jordan, and he probably in a one-on-one match would beat him, in a, you know, because he's he had the same skill sets, but he's bigger. And at some point in time, there may be thirty years from now, a guy seven foot two who can do what LeBron does, and he would beat LeBron in one-on-one, but. Cleveland fans should should embrace and 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 taste the fruits of victory because they've got a player like nobody else has in the world. This is the greatest player in the world, and you guys get to see him all the time. And living down here, we don't get the the Cavalier games. I wish we did, but uh, he, he's a, he's a marvel, and uh, you, you certainly want to take advantage of that whenever you can. He definitely is something else, and. You know, congratulations to the Cavaliers. I certainly hope the Indians can do it. Right now, they're a half a game up in the American League Central Division, Mark. They are 38-30. and 30. They went 3-3 three and three last week, but they're in first place. They're a half a game ahead of Kansas City, four and a half games ahead of Toronto as we enter, or ahead of Detroit, excuse me, as we head into action tonight. Meanwhile, the Reds are 27 and 43. They're in last place in the National League Central, 21 and a half games out. But they went three and four last week. And a couple of items of news before we get into the Indians, Mark. Let's get into the Reds. Cody Reed made his long-awaited debut on Saturday against Houston. In your opinion, how did he do? Uh, he did great. He struck out nine. Uh, he was at, at times overpowering. Uh, he did lay two sliders out over the plate. Back back one was a fastball he put in the wrong spot. But as overall stuff is evaluated, he's got it. This guy's only 23 years old, 22 years old, left-hander, throwing. He was still at 97 miles an hour in in the seventh inning, and you know he's he's just a rookie, <laughs> his first game. So uh, he's got all the tools, and uh, he came within one of tying the Reds' record for most strikeouts for a start, first start for a for a Reds player. And the guy who did that was Johnny Cueto. He struck out ten, and and Reed struck out nine. So, and, you know, Reed could have gone out and pitched another uh, couple innings, too. But uh, overall, I think uh, the Reds fans should be ecstatic about him. 
and uh, the rotation is now beginning to shape up, as is the rest of, of the, the pitching staff, because you're going to have Michael Lorenzen back, and you're going to have Rasiel Iglesias back, and um, that's going to certainly put a different uh, look to that to that bullpen. And uh, you know, I think the Reds will have a pretty good second half, because even though they were shut out yesterday, they are hitting a lot. And I think they they may have found a star in Adam Duvall. Uh, this guy hit a home run Saturday against Houston to the opposite field on a pitch about four inches outside. He just flicked his wrist, and the ball went out. And they showed him in the locker room, I guess it was about a week ago. <laughs> and this guy, he is ripped. I mean, he is he's put together like a, a professional football player. He's got thick legs, a thick butt. You know, that power base he has, but he's got enormous uh, Steve Garvey-type forearms. And now he's learning to hit. So I think there is some hope in terms of the pitching staff, number one. And perhaps uh, as early as next year, the Reds could be competitive again. I don't think they're going to win anything next year. But they've got some good pitchers coming up. And uh, the question now is how do you get rid of Cozart Bruce and uh, Brandon Phillips because they're going to have to do that, and I, I would I would doubt any one of those three is going to be here at the end of the year. Mark Adam Duvall has got a two fifty seven batting average after yesterday, twenty home runs, forty eight RBIs, which is funny because his major league baseball career stats coming into this season, he had eight home runs. He's he's doubled more than doubled that. In this year, he has really been a find for this team. And, and I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you last week. Did the Giants just give up on this guy, or, or what What was the deal? I know they wanted Mike Leake, but still to give up a talent like this, especially when the Giants are so devoid of real outfield talent, is a surprise. Yeah, and I, I don't know what they saw in him they didn't like, but uh, what has been surprising pleasantly surprising to everybody is his defense. He is a good left fielder. I mean, he's not just passable. He's good. And he's got a great arm. And it, there's a lot of talk down here that he may not be a left fielder for long. They may put him at third base uh, and then do something if they if they get rid of uh, Brandon Cozart or Zach Cozart, uh, move Suarez back to shortstop. I, I don't know. But um, he's, he's, a, he's a good player. He's got great speed. And what do the Giants think about that trade now? Probably not much, <laughs> because this guy, uh, he has got legitimate power. It's, it's not, this is not steroid power. This, this is a George Foster type power. And I'm surprised he's hitting as high as he is at what, 257? Uh, he, he can, uh, certainly improve on that over the years and become more of a, a threat to the opposite field because you pitch a ball in the outside corner, he'll hit it 450 feet. So pitchers, the thing I like about him, Dave, is he's been hammering the breaking ball. If you get a breaking ball in the inner half to him, he has turned on these things, and he can crush it to left field. And if you take it out over the plate or on the outside corner, he can take it to the opposite field, much like Adam Dunn used to do. But Adam Dunn didn't have Duvall's swing. It was a big, long, looping swing. This guy's got a short, compact, powerful swing. He's got short arms, and he's strong, as, as you can imagine. I mean, just an incredibly strong guy. So he may be a fixture in left field for the Reds for you know seasons to come. Well, another player I want to talk about is Billy Hamilton. We'll do that here in just just a second. But the the Indians, they are about as Jekyll and Hyde as you can be over the last couple of weeks, but. They continue to win. They're now eight games above 500. they They're a half a game up on Kansas City. Even though they lost three straight at Kansas City last week on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they then came back home and won three straight against the White Sox at Progressive Field, where Terry Francona said after yesterday's game, it's really nice to be home. We talk about a lot when you're at home, just like if you're in on a road. If something goes right or wrong, it's nice to be the home team, and that was, you know, that was a pretty, pretty, pretty good game. I mean, played by 
played well by both teams. I mean, the play Lowry made the inning before, you know, on Michael Martinez's ball. I mean, that's that's a hit. And I was just thinking maybe he hit it too too sharply where, you know, Eden would have a play at the plate. He ended up catching it. But we you know, we kept putting pressure. Rajay had a great day. And, you know, you know that, that, that bad hop doesn't really matter if you don't have anybody on base. You know, Francona brings up Rajay Davis there, Mark. And I have been one of Rajay Davis's biggest critics as far as his defense is concerned. You've never heard me say anything about his offense. I just think he's a DH in the making. But ever since Marlon Byrd was suspended and the outfield became more reliable and more fixed with Davis more in left field than he is in center field, he's been hitting the heck out of the baseball. Yesterday, Mark, it was his eighth four-hit game of his career. He went four for five with a pair of doubles, two runs scored, a stolen base, and he's been playing better ever since he went to left field full time is there something about that mark where when you some guys just can't handle jumping positions back and forth oh sure i mean that's um it's part of i guess the maturation process in the big leagues because uh you, you're much better off if you can jump from position to position and particularly valuable is a player who can play the infield and the outfield somewhere uh, that gives managers a lot of, of flexibility uh, to with their lineups, and and really makes for for long careers if you can do that. So in, in defense too, Dave, I think uh, you, you may be, be a little hard on these guys. It takes time to, to learn to play defense in the big leagues because the balls are hit harder, uh, the stadiums are different, uh, you have wind conditions, and it does take some time to get comfortable in any outfield, whether it's your home outfield or not. Don't forget. Just because these guys are playing for the Indians doesn't mean they played in that, in that stadium a lot. So defense will develop over time, and as they learn, you know, how to, to track a ball, and that's that's the big thing. It, it's your path to the ball, and that can be learned. Because if you look at Billy Hamilton, you mentioned him. He was he was a gifted athlete when he went to the outfield from shortstop, and he was able to make the adjustment as quickly as anybody I have ever seen. Because his arm's so strong, for a skinny little guy, he's got a cannon. He can really throw the ball. So, and he has the unbelievable breaking speed, but he gets a great jump on the ball. So, Rajay Davis and the other guys you mentioned, they'll get better with time because they'll work at it. The Indians will force them to work at it. So, I wouldn't be too critical too soon, uh, unless a guy just doesn't uh, take the time to go out there and get better. Well, another player, Tyler Naquin, again, he's, I, I get picked on a lot because I really do like the way that this kid looks at the plate and in center field. And Naquin really is proving me to be quite a pundit, although I don't, he's making me look smarter than what I think I actually am, Mark. Well, I'm sure he's of that, David. I'm sure of that. <laughs> he's hitting 320 this year, five homers, only 14 RBIs, but that's because he's really hitting out of the number nine position and has been most of the year during his three trips up to the major leagues. But again, he has helped solidify the outfield. Now, what happens when Michael Brantley comes back? That's just icing on the cake as far as I'm concerned because you could put Brantley into that left field position and then depending upon what you do. One of the players that I think, Mark, two of them, actually, that I think are on the hot seat with the Indians are Juan Uribe and Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana, to me, I think, has worn out his welcome in Cleveland. Yes, he's got 16 home runs, and 11 of them have come from the left side of the plate. But the problem with Carlos Santana is that's all he ever hits is home runs. Now, that seems stupid. I understand that. But when... You come up in situations, Mark, you know as well as I do, that a base hit is just as good as a home run. But with Santana anymore, he does one of three things. Strikes out, hits a home run, or walks. And that's why they've moved him to the leadoff position. He is not a leadoff hitter. He's, I think mainly his best spot in the batting order, really, Mark, would be sixth or seventh on a team that can hit the baseball. And I think you could, you could hide him there. Defensively, he is a liability. 
but I just I think he's one of the players that is on the hot seat. Another player, like like I said, is Uribe. You know, we talked about last week, Mark, about how Uribe got hit in the mommy daddy button. And we talked about that for a little bit, and I don't really want to get into it any more than that. But we talked about the evolution of the cup. Come to find out, Mark, Uribe wasn't wearing a cup. And his excuse for it is, jokingly or not, this is what he said, they can't make one big enough. (laughs) You know, that's a great line. Every baseball player ought to use. (laughs) I um, my younger son made this comment. The guy's making $5 million a year. You would think he could spend the money to have one specially made. Yeah, and I'm sure that was a tongue-in-cheek for the benefit yes. of his teammates. You know, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I could give you a lot of stories that would probably... Uh, <laughs> we, we got into it enough last week. <laughs> but I, I think he's another player on the hot seat, Mark, because Juan Ramirez, Jose Ramirez... He's 23 years old, through 60 games, get these stats. He's got a 294 batting average, three home runs, 16 doubles, 23 RBIs, 33 runs scored. He's hitting 381, Mark, with runners in scoring position, 16 for 42. And 414, 12 for 29, with runners in scoring position and two outs. This kid has turned out to be, if they ever get him solidified in a position, which... I think it's either going to be second base or third base. If they move him to second base, it'll be to move Kipnis to third. Or they could just put him at third base. They've got to find a position for him because I think he could be even better than what he is now. Well, you guys have a a nucleus of some young players there that are going to keep you competitive for a long time, particularly with that pitching staff. And that's where... I think the the Reds and other teams who do what the Reds have done. The Reds have gone from a, a break, what's the term, buster break or whatever you want to call it. They, they they can't maintain an even keel like the Cardinals do. And the Cardinals are having a down year this year. They just got swept. But they're probably going to finish second in the division at the end of the year. Uh, I doubt they'll make the playoffs, but they could. But the Reds are taking the, the Florida Marlins and Houston Astro and really Chicago Cup path that you get so bad that you you tank, you get high draft picks. And I'm going to talk about the Reds draft again before we get off. Um, but the Indians are now in a position, you look at their roster and the ages that you guys have. Uh, you've got a young, good nucleus of players. And, you know, that's what the Indians had back in the 90s. They didn't win it. But that team was as talented as there was. And as a matter of fact, the Indians, I think it was in 95, I think, were one of the few teams to score over a 1,000 runs in a season. Yes. That's incredible. I mean, 1,000 runs is is unbelievable amount of runs to score. And I think they may have done that twice during the 90s. So they had, you're right, they had Hall of Fame players and I'm not saying the Indians have Hall of Fame players now, but that team that you have in place, that could be a winner for the next five, six years until these guys get to free agency and you'll, you'll lose some people. But uh, that's what you want to do with an organization. You want to keep that level competitive, uh, the, the level competitive juices flowing for your fan base that no matter what happens this year with the Indians, next spring training, People are going to look at that roster and say, this team can win. They may not win, but this team can win. They're, they're good. And that is what I think the goal should be for a team, not to bottom out like the Reds have done. The Reds are going to end up 30, 35 games behind this year. That, that, that's a lost season. Last year was a lost season. How much revenue have the Reds lost in the last three years because nobody wants to go see them play? I think it's just a bad business model that the Reds are following, but we'll see. And, and that's what I could say about the Indians. The crowds are coming back. You know, last year, nobody really believed in this team. This year, I think people are believing in this team. Over the three-game series against the White Sox, they averaged 32,000, just under 32,000 a game. It doesn't sound like a lot, but in Cleveland, where they have been mired towards the bottom of the American League in attendance over the last few years, that's a big crowd. They've got a big crowd there tonight. 
for Tampa Bay. I, I actually think, you know, we, we started off the show talking about the Cavaliers, Mark, winning the NBA title. I think the Cavaliers winning the NBA title could help the Indians and spur their attendance along right now because there's still another month to go before training camp starts for football towards the end of July, which is normally when the crowds start to plummet for the Indians. But if this team continues to play well and attracts the fans to progressive field, we could see a resurgence in the attendance at Cleveland, and and it could continue on for the next few years, like you said, with these players staying with the tribe. I think you're right about the the overflow of enthusiasm from the Cavaliers to the Indians. I, I think you're absolutely right. Right now, the the city is pumped up in championship fever. Uh, they're excited that, that they want to see the Indians win. And, you know, the Indians have a unique situation where they have a team that, number one, can make the playoffs. I think they're almost assured to make the playoffs. And if you get to the playoffs, you have a chance to win the World Series. How cool would that be? To have the Indians win oh. it this year, and then the Cavaliers win it. Of course, you still have the Browns, but two out of three ain't bad. And that would that would put the the pundits who've always been bad mouthing Cleveland sports teams to you know to rest, because you guys legitimately this is this is no pie in the sky I hope you have a chance to have a, a city that could have two world championships team championship teams in the same year. Very very rare. And the black guy in the middle of it all, Donald Trump. not going to get political but the the republican national convention is in cleveland (laughs) so there you you go mark before we get into the draft for the reds are you surprised at how well billy hamilton is hitting the ball he's hitting 263 going into action tomorrow yeah and he was hitting 275 yesterday he had an over but um no, no, I'm not really surprised. He has changed his approach. And what's happening is he's getting stronger. You can see it, you know, the way his, his, he's been lifting, he's been working out. He's very slender. But he was overpowered by fastballs when he first came up. And now he's not overpowered. He's making good, solid contact. And he is, he could be somebody who could be around for a while. And what you want to do is create value. Uh, with these players. You want these guys to succeed because they make your roster more valuable for trades. Not that the Reds, Reds want to trade him, but you have a sh- you have like a shelf value of these players. Everybody everybody does that. So it's it's not surprising and I think if this guy could hit if he could hit 260, uh he he is an all-star player. I mean, his defense there's been a lot of great center fielders, so I don't want to compare eras. And but there's nobody that I can recall faster in center field than Billy Hamilton. And he covers ground. He's got a great arm, so he's all-star caliber right now as an outfielder, maybe the best center fielder in baseball. And then you add his speed on the bases. This guy could steal 50 bases easily. He'll probably, you know, steal more than that if he's on base more. Uh, and if he can get his batting average up to 260, 270, you've got, you've got a superstar based on what he can provide in terms of war uh, and, and his value to a team. So I think the Reds have a good find there. <laughs> and if, if he continue, and he, one thing I like about Billy Hamilton, he works. He really works at it. He wants to be better, and that's, that's what you need. Now, uh, I don't know if you heard what happened down here over the weekend, but uh, Marty Brenneman really got on Joey Votto's case. I'm anxious to see how this, this ends up. Uh, uh, in, in one situation, Joey Votto's been playing horrific defense. He really has. I have to agree with Marty, who I don't always agree with. But in this case, Joey Votto has this tendency to olay the ball. He'll side, I, I play first base. I know how to play first base. I know how to teach it. And he does so many things wrong, fundamentally, at first base. And it's catching up with him. Balls are getting by him. He he reaches out rather than getting in front of the ball, rather than blocking it with his body. He just kind of olays it with his glove, and sometimes he doesn't catch it. And then yesterday there was a ground ball to second base that he hit, and he basically walked out of the batter's box. And the, the second baseman booted the ball, and he still had time to, to throw Joey out because Joey didn't run. And Marty Brenneman just you know, eviscerated him on the air. 
you know, basically saying the least you can do is run. You know, you're making this. I mean, the inference was you're making twenty five million dollars a year and you don't run to first base, and and you're hitting two forty five. Uh, come on, you know, and start playing defense. I mean, he just kept going back to it. It was kind of painful to hear it because he just blasted him <laughs> on the air, and that's unusual. You don't hear that often. And I wonder, and the reason you don't hear it is the announcers don't want to get on the bad side of the team for whom they work, uh, uh, and they don't want to get on the bad side of the clubhouse where the players, you know, revolt against them. But Marty doesn't care. He's at a point in his career he didn't care. So it was kind of refreshing to hear an announcer say it the way it is. And, a lot, and I'll bet you the team isn't that upset because sometimes the announcers can say things that the team won't to a player. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and and they can. And, you know, I've I've watched a lot of Reds games this year on the Fox Sports app that I've got. And I have been particularly surprised at the way Joey Votto has approached at-bats. I've seen the defense that you're talking about. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's almost like he knows this is a season where he could be gone. And if he is, great. Then he'll turn it on. If he's not, what are they going to do? I still get owed another $9 million or another nine years at $25 million a year. It's it's almost like Mark, he just doesn't care. Yeah, that's the, I mean, I, from what I hear, now I, I, and I, I don't like to go by what I see in, in trying to ascertain a personality or what a guy's thinking by a t, you know, the TV screen. You can't. Uh, some guys internalize everything. From what I hear, he's, a, he's very self-critical. He, you know, he really wants to, and he works. But, you know, I think... If you look at his approach at the plate, and I looked at his um, some video from him back in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, he's a different hitter right now. He's a completely different hitter. And I don't know why he is taking this Pete Rose approach. Every time he goes to the plate where he chokes up, then he's choking up six and seven inches on the bat. That's a, that he, he hits, I, I, I've picked up his bat and swung it. Uh, Rocio Iglesias was a 10 of mine last year. Yes. And he had a collection of bats, and I happened to was in in his closet, and he showed me around and all that stuff. And I picked up a Joey Votto bat, and it's only a thirty-four. I think it's a thirty-two, thirty-four, and he's choking up six or seven inches. That only gives you above your top hand a small amount of space to hit the baseball with, and it it really takes away your power leverage. Now, do you make more contact? Yeah, <clears throat> but if you make more contact. If that's the purpose of doing it, why is Joey Votto leading the team in strikeouts? It's because he, do, he doesn't he doesn't expand the strike zone. He's so even with two strikes, and, and they're getting him on the inner half. That's where he's striking out. He takes pitch after pitch after pitch, <clears throat> two strike pitches. He doesn't swing and miss much. He takes an incredible amount of strikes, and I, I don't know what's in his brain that he says he should go up there and try to be P. Rose when you're 6'3", 220. It's, it's just, I, I don't know what's inside his head. And that's what bothers me about Joey Votto. Is he so above the fray that he doesn't listen to hit, hitting coaches? Because right now he's a spray hitter. That's all he is. He, he's a $25 million a year first baseman, not a premium position, and he's hitting 245, and he's, he's punching the ball to left field. It, it's right now... And I like Joey Votto. I like him. But he ought to be hitting 40 home runs a year and driving in 125 runs. That's that's not what he's doing. Well, you wanted to get into the draft, and you brought up Pete Rose. I want to get into Pete Rose here in just a second, but you brought up the Reds draft from a week ago. <clears throat> yeah, and I, and I think it, it is it, it could be um, an organization-changing draft. I mean, they picked up at least two players, maybe three or four, that are really good players. And the one I, I'm particularly intrigued by is this kid out of Georgia. He's 18 years old. And um, uh, we see Trammell. Taylor Trammell is his name. Mm-hmm. And I looked him up online and saw him playing. And, man, he looks like the real deal. I mean, this guy looks like he could be uh, a, a 
potential all-star player, <clears throat> incredible speed. He's a football player. He set the Georgia record as a quarterback for, t- for touchdowns thrown and run. He's strong. He's fast. In stolen bases, he was 29 for 29, and he hit 550. He's got power, and he's only 18. Uh, and the, the other thing I like about this kid, uh, he has a, he's a 4-0 student. He ha- had been accepted to Georgia Tech, and I think he was in physics or something, you know, something hard. I forget what it was. Something I wouldn't have taken in college. <laughs> and this kid, they interviewed him on TV. He's very articulate, very intelligent, very poised, and he's the kind of kid who could really make an impact on the Reds. In, in a couple of years, I mean, he, I think he could come up in two or three years and make an impact on this team. And that's not even their, their first draft choice, the Sinzel kid out of Tennessee. Uh, man, I, I saw him play on TV. I saw him in three or four games. And, you know, this guy looks like he could step in right now and play. He, he's, he's that physically developed. He's, you know, he's, he's a junior in college, so he's bigger, he's stronger. And he... He reminds me of the third baseman uh, right for the, the Mets. He's kind of that body style, that kind of bat speed and, and all that. So I, I think the Reds did real well. They got a catcher in the third round, and uh, they picked up a number of really good pitchers in the lower rounds. So I think the draft proved to be what it should have been for the Reds. You never know. I certainly won't hold it against the those making the picks if these guys don't pan out. But from all indications, from, from third parties evaluating how the Reds did, I think the Reds improved their organization a great deal this year. Mark, let's get into Pete Rose. He will be inducted into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame this weekend. Obviously, it's, it's long overdue. You and I have talked almost ad nauseum about Pete Rose and how we think he should be in the, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, but... You know, one small step at a time, even though it's 30 years in the making, he'll be involved in the Reds Hall of Fame, and his number will be retired. Obviously, we both feel that it's long overdue. How? What's going on down there in Cincinnati? It'll happen this weekend. Of course, the, the crowds are going to be outstanding, I would think. Pete will be back. Davey Concepcion, from what I hear, is going to be back. Most of the big red machine will be back, from what I understand. How's the city embracing this? Well, they're over the over the moon in love with Pete, and they always will be. And you have to be from Cincinnati to understand how he fits into the fabric of this community. He, he's one of theirs. I mean, he came from the west side of town, you know, hard scrabble beginning, and he he was the local boy who made good. I mean, he made great, and that is what makes his fall from grace so compelling a story. Is he's um, he's just he is Cincinnati born and raised, and he always will be. And if you ever see him in other stadiums, he always has a Cincinnati Reds baseball cap on. He always recognizes himself as a Cincinnati Red, and uh, the, the fans never forgot that. And he played the way every fan in every stadium in America wants their team to play, like uh, you know, diving into the bases and running hard and. You would never see him do what Joey Votto did the other day, you know, walking basically to first base. That would never happen to Pete Rose, and that's why people loved him so much. And yeah, it's it's it's. We've talked about this ad nauseum. It's a travesty to have a, a Major League Baseball Hall of Fame and not have Pete Rose in it. It's just it's absurd. And so hopefully someday before he dies, and don't forget he's like what 74 years old. I hope he makes it before he dies. He seems to be in good shape, though. Yeah, he does. I mean, he's, he's strong. And I remember uh, seeing Pete downtown Cincinnati during the off season. It was like in a, it was, I guess it was in the fall. It was kind of cold. But I remember how big his legs were. <laughs> I mean, this is a big man. Pete, people think little Pete Rose, you know, second baseman. This guy was put together like a, a fire plug. He was really strong, huge arms. Uh, but he, he was a very, very strong guy, and he stayed, it looks to me, he stayed in pretty good shape. So hopefully he'll be around for a long time. And it's a, it's a tragedy that uh, nobody loves baseball more than Pete Rose. And the fact he couldn't stay in the game was a detriment to him and a detriment to the sport in general and certainly a detriment to Cincinnati fans because 
he would have been part of the Reds organization for as long as he wanted to be. Well, the number is 4256. Pete, the all-time hit king. But there are some this week, this past week, Mark, that want to contend that Ichiro is now the all-time hit king because if you combine his Japanese total with his Major League Baseball total, he now stands at 42.57 after last Wednesday's base hit in an afternoon game for the Miami Marlins. Now, Mark, I contend that if this if he would be playing for the New York Yankees still, this would have been a bigger story than it is with Miami. But there are still some guys out there, some writers, some reporters that still have a vendetta against Pete. They they hold the the fact that they say that he lied to everyone and and he probably did, but they still hold that over his head and use that as a case that Ichiro should be the all time hit king. Oh, that's I don't agree with it. I think it's nuts. Yeah, it's what patently absurd and. One person you never heard making that statement is Ichiro himself. He knows better. And he would never, he's too classy a guy to make that kind of comparison. And I think the best retort I've heard to that position is, okay, they say because he was in professional ball. Well, Pete had 457 minor league hits. So are you going to add that to his total? Because that was professional ball. And I bet AAA baseball in America is better than Japanese baseball, professional baseball. Maybe AA is better. So I, I don't think anybody who knows anything what they're talking about would say that Ichiro's minor league hits, which is Japanese baseball, should be added to his total. And, and Ichiro never said that. They, they, you never heard one thing about it. And, uh, again, he's too classy a guy to do it. And whoever's saying that is just stupid. It, it, it makes no sense unless you want to, again, add minor league statistics to um, a major leaguer's uh, overall career statistics. It makes no sense. Well, and one interesting comment that I heard was in 2003, I believe it was 2003 when Ichiro came into the league, he was given the Rookie of the Year award. Now, if he's Rookie of the Year, how do you count any other hits? Well, that's, that's precisely the point. And, uh, again, you ha- you have to find out you mentioned that some writers are saying, I don't know who they are, but I've not seen anybody put their name to a claim that Ichiro should be given that kind of recognition. The only person I heard was Grace, Mark Grace, saying that it should get more recognition. Okay, fine, give it more recognition. But, yeah, Ichiro is a great hitter, certainly a Hall of Fame player. Nobody's questioning that. But this is just statistical Analysis. You can't add minor league statistics to a major league. As you said, he was rookie of the year in 2003. Uh, before that, by definition, he wasn't playing in the major league. So you know, it, it makes it's a, such a stupid argument. Uh, I don't know who's making it, but uh, I don't agree with it. And here's here's something that I did not know, Mark. And I wish I had all the pictures. I can remember some of them, but I can't remember all of them. I, I saw an article where back in the 1970s, Pete went to bat seven consecutive days. Mark, he faced a Hall of Fame pitcher. Now, I can remember five of them. Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, Tom Seaver, Steve Carlton, and Bob Gibson. Wow. I can't remember the other two. Well, they had to be National Leaguers. Uh, I don't know who's... Uh, Maybe yeah, Hoyt, and, Hoyt I can't or... remember the other, but seven consecutive days he faced Hall of Fame pitchers. You don't do that in the Japanese league. No, no, you don't. And you, then you, these arguments are, are so specious that uh, there's so many flaws in that. Uh, but I think you hit on a very good one. He was rookie of the year in 2003. Okay, that's when his career began. End of story. Well, so he's going to be inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame this weekend. Mark, in just a few minutes, there's a game that's going to be happening out in Los Angeles. This doesn't seem like much on the surface. The Washington Nationals will be in L.A. to face the Dodgers. Now, Washington's in first place. They'll face the Dodgers, who are in second place, six games behind the Giants. The pitching matchup is Steven Strasburg, 10-0 for the Nationals, against Clayton Kershaw, 10-1 for the Dodgers. This is their first ever meeting, Mark. First ever. 
It's you know, I heard a guy yesterday say that Kershaw is on a different planet. That he he's pitching, he's so overpowering at this point that he, he he's so much better than the rest of the league. But Strasburg is a guy who could be that good. He's got the he's got the abilities to be that good. This reminds me of when. You know, Sandy Koufax used to go against Steve Carlton. You know, you know these guys. It's going to be a great game. If if any team scores two runs, it'll probably be against the bullpen. Uh, so this is one of those games. I saw that in the paper this morning, as a matter of fact. That's one of those games I actually will watch because it's such a compelling matchup. And, and Kershaw, God, he is such a strong guy. And he's got a motion that's kind of funky. But it, it doesn't look like he has the kind of motion that's going to hurt his arm. This guy could be around for a while. <clears throat> he's still throwing 97, you know, 96, 97 on his fastball. But he's got the kind of, uh, of slider that you haven't seen, at least I haven't seen from a left-hander, since Steve Carlton. And, you know, Steve Carlton was virtually unhittable. You, you, you really couldn't get a bat on him. And the, the year that he won 27 games for the Phillies, that team – he won 27 games. That team won 52 games all year. Yes. That's how good he was. So that's exciting. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I meant to mention that myself. But uh, it's like a, a throwback matchup. Mark, on this day in baseball in 1982, as far as the Reds are concerned, I've got one for the Indians, too, as we wind down tonight's show. But in 1982, what happened? That's the year they had a horrible team. Um <laughs> Did Pete Rose come back? Pete Rose played in his 3,000th Major League game. Okay. A 3-1 oh. to one loss to the Pirates. He joined at that time Ty Cobb, Stan Musial, Hank Aaron, and Carl Yastrzemski as the only players to reach that plateau. And I'm going to ask you this one just for the heck of it, just to see how your memory your memory is. On this day in baseball in 1948, what happened to the Indians franchise? Uh... It was sold to Baltimore. No. <laughs> <laughs> Good guess. They they had a doubleheader against the Yankees, and they drew 82,781. That's a major league record for a regular season game that would be broken by the Indians later on in 1954 for a doubleheader. 82,781. Wow. I wonder how many hot dogs they sold. <laughs> Certainly it was a dollar dog night. That's right. <laughs> and you know, one thing about it, Mark, I was thinking while you were talking about Joey Votto, I just want to add this in. I know one place that he definitely, two places, I know that Joey Votto will not be traded to. One is Cleveland, and the other one is Toronto, because Mark Shapiro will not absorb that contract. None of it. Well, why, why not Toronto? Mark Shapiro won't absorb that contract. Oh, Mark. Okay, I, th- I thought you said he wouldn't go to t- Toronto because of uh, of the for some other reason than, than Mark Shapiro. Uh, no, because no, Shapiro he, he won't like absorb to to, that contract. Yeah, he'd like to go to Toronto, that's for sure. Well, I, he, he won't. He won't make it there. You know that that's one place that he definitely will not go. Mark the Reds this week. They were off tonight, but they're going to Texas for tomorrow in a Wednesday game, and then. They'll have a four-game set against San Diego this weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so they head out west. The Indians this week, they're playing Tampa Bay tonight, and they play them again tomorrow night and Wednesday. They'll be off on Thursday, and then they go to Detroit to face the Tigers, who are right now four and a half games behind the Indians in the Central, and that'll be Friday, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon. So we'll talk to you again next week, Mark. You have a good one, Dave. You too. And again, happy Father's Day. Congratulations to the Cavaliers. Mention that one more time. Absolutely. That's going to do it here tonight for the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Thanks for joining us here this evening. Glad to have you along. I'm Dave Mitchell. Thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening here tonight. We'll be back again next Monday night at 9 o'clock with another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Good night. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. Yogi read the comics all the while Rock and roll was being born Marijuana we would scorn So down on the corner the national pastime went on trial We're talking baseball Klazuski camp
vanilla talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew 'em all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey and the Duke. <laughs> 